You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 46 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnen and David Ian Howe. In this episode, we are pleased to introduce Maria Diet Sletrod, a Danish archaeologist studying the pre-pottery Neolithic in the Near East at the University of Copenhagen. Thank you so much, Maria, for joining us today. How badly did I butcher your name? Half bad. No, it's okay. It's uh, <laughs> Maria, so it's like very uh, like very hard, and then uh, you have a diet Sletrod. So again, it's the it. sound you need to make, like you're throwing up or something. That's the Danish way to pronounce things. I got, it's a very vomity language. No, no, don't worry about <laughs> it. Vomity language. <laughs> yeah, we have the uh, 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 that's like, like oh, please. Like, it's a very weird language. So, like, yeah. Uh, that's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful yeah. way to describe it. <laughs> yeah, and when you read something, it's like, don't pronounce half of it, because then, like, like half of the words, like half of the parts of the words you don't like really pronounce. So it's uh, very difficult to learn and very difficult to speak if you're not native, I would say, because of the weird sounds we make. So yeah, I think you did well with my name. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I got nervous. I know we were practicing beforehand. Well, uh, how, are, how are you doing today and what time is it? Are you in Copenhagen right now? Yes, I'm in Copenhagen. It is... Uh, very dark. It's uh, six o'clock or ten past six in the evening, and it's really, really cold outside. It's, uh, I would say, minus three degrees uh, Celsius, but that's like because it's a very windy country. That's like minus eleven instead. So that's really cold here. But I'm good. A bit frozen, but that no. Um, <laughs> we have good heating here. So no, uh, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Excellent. So me and you first met through Natasha on yeah. Approaching Colonialism in Archaeology episode, uh, Archaeologists in Quarantine episode six. Mm. I mean, we got to talk about some fun, fun topics with Natasha and, and Gabby. And so we were really excited uh, to have you on because as, as Connor was saying in pre-episode, we haven't had anyone who's worked in the Near East and nor have we had a Danish archaeologist on. So I mean, how did you originally get to meet Natasha and, and get on Archaeologists in Quarantine? Well, it was back in April last year. And there was uh, someone who made like a chain message group on Instagram. And I unfortunately don't remember the name of the person who did it. So it was during the first lockdown here in Denmark. And people in the group started to talk about like what they are doing in archaeology. And at some point, Natasha then asked if any of us would be interested in doing a group chat like on Zoom. Um, and she would stream it to her YouTube. So we were a bunch of people from the group who was like, yeah, let's do it. And it was super fun and a really great initiative. So shout out to Natasha for that. But that was how I met her actually in a group chain message group chat thing on Instagram. So <laughs> a bit random. That's very, that's very cool. And uh, yeah, I want to shout out to Natasha for keeping us and, and for you for participating in Carlton for, for participating in, for helping keep us sane uh, during these <laughs> lockdown times. So 
We usually start out kind of our first section asking about like kind of how how you came into archaeology and what were your like early interests. So could, could you let us know how you kind of got into archaeology and when you first kind of encountered it? Well, I don't have like this amazing origin story, as I know a lot of archaeologists do. But I've always been like as a child, been very uh, interested in ancient cultures and history. And my mom took me to museums literally from the day I was born, basically. So uh, we always used to go to this place, a museum in Copenhagen called the Glyptotech. I was really interested in the ancient Egypt, Egypt department there, which was really cool or is because it has like this uh, crypt where you first go into a room where they showcase like what the pharaohs would have with them in the grave. And then you go down this like really wide and big staircase and it's really dim and then you go into a room with mummies and that was just my favorite thing um so and when i was around six i had the classic dinosaur obsession so i wanted to be a paleontologist well then i kind of got away from all of this archaeology and history and wanted to become a singer and be happy i didn't because i can't sing and then I wanted to have a bakery and then I wanted to be a teacher in Africa. And then when I was maybe 22, I was like, oh, wait, I really like this like ancient Egypt and ancient like um, Southwest Asia. And I found out that I could actually study archaeology as an actual degree, which was specifically about Egypt and Southwest Asia only. So I ended up having that as my goal and then I started university a few years later. So it was like kind of a culmination of many moments throughout my life, I would say. What exactly got you interested in like Southwest Asian archaeology in general, like being from you know Denmark? Mm, well, that's actually a hard question because I think, like, as I said, I was really interested in Egypt as a child. I think a lot of like children uh, think it's really right. cool, you know? And then I I didn't have the biggest, biggest interest in Southwest Asia, actually. But then I started university. And I think as many people normally do, they have a big interest in like the very known, well-known like civilizations and the pharaohs and the kingdoms and the great wars and stuff like that. But I started to figure out that like Southwest Asia was really interesting and especially the prehistory. So like Southwest Asia became, became like the thing for me when I started university actually. Before that, I thought it would be into Egypt. <laughs> so I gotcha. Yeah, Egypt's kind of like a gateway drug into all the other yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, dinosaurs as well, as we've established on this mm. podcast. But <laughs> have you had opportunity to kind of excavate and to work in Southwest Asia or the Near East? Yes. So at the university, you have like a mandatory field school. You have to go on after the second semester. So you have to. The university has one for you, but you can also choose outside. But usually, like most people just choose the field school that this department of Near Eastern Archaeology has, which is in Jordan. Like it's fully paid, so you don't have to like really take care of any expenses. And it's one month, and that was a Bronze Age site uh, called the Ritual Landscape of Muregad, and is uh, a bit south of Amman, the capital. So I went there. Uh, years back for a month where I just like kind of learned everything basic and then been to Cyprus the year after for like a two-week field school which was uh, experimental archaeology and human remains mainly 
And then um, in 2019, I was in Israel for three months uh, on an internship with the uh, Israel Antiquities Authority at a really large site called Mutza. And that was like a really amazing experience. So yeah, <laughs> so I've gotten that opportunity. Where in Israel uh, is that Mutza site? Uh, Mutza, that's like five kilometers outside of Jerusalem. So, okay. yeah, I lived um, close to the site um, in a small town outside of Jerusalem. Yeah. And I was there for three months. So that was cool. cool. Yeah, it's a it's a gorgeous city for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of tension, but like I wouldn't uh, want yeah. to live there. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's <laughs> beautiful to either. visit. No, it's beautiful to like visit and see and like, but I wouldn't want to live there. And I know a lot of... Israeli citizens feel the same way. <laughs> yeah, that was the general consensus I got when I was yeah. there. Oh, yes. I also went to another site in Israel while I was working at my internship. Actually, I almost forgot. It's called Amuda and it's an Hellenistic site, I guess, Edomian. And it's, uh, I went there because when I arrived in Israel, there was like two weeks after I came, it was Passover. So everything was closed, like every work site. Mm. But the director, one of the directors of uh, Mutsa, he was like, do you want to uh, go to a different site? Because, you know, I was like obsessed with working on sites. So he, uh, he contacted some people and they had this one site, uh, Amuda, which is uh, on a military base. So it's actually only excavated wow. during holidays. And it's in the Judean... Uh, Lowlands, Highlands. Well, it's yeah, it's close to uh, the Negev Desert, and it's really beautiful. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was there for, I was there twice for like a week and a half altogether, and yeah, it was cool. That's yeah, that's super interesting, and I think we're going to talk more about this in the third section a little bit. But it's mm. it's got to be interesting working in a place where this this tension yeah. exists. <laughs> Like that, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, visiting places and touring and doing like tourism in pl- these places, but actually working there has got to be kind of a surreal and very interesting experience. Yeah, especially I'm from Denmark and it's like such a peaceful country, like nothing happens. We love murder mysteries because nobody gets murdered here, basically. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> well, some of the best crime writers are from Scandinavia because like it's all in our imagination. We would never, ever kill someone. We just write it down in a book. No, I don't know. But it's very peaceful here. So like we don't have wars and we've had like, we don't have terror attacks. We have like one or two like I don't know, my whole life, maybe three, I'm 31. And it's like, it's very peaceful here. So it's very different to go to a place like Israel, for example. And everyone's walking around with like giant rifles and stuff everywhere. Yeah, yeah it's, it was jarring. super scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a bit scary just to see like 18 year olds just walking around with a rifle and be like, whoa, you're not <laughs> yeah. old enough for that. Like, <laughs> You can vote, but you shouldn't carry that. And it's scary when you come from Denmark because there's no weapons here. Like, you don't, people can't, like, don't have guns. So you don't see weapons here unless something is wrong. So you only see weapons when there's like been an attack or been like some big, thing happening you see police with guns or like weapons but it's not every day it's like very rarely that happens so it was a very weird thing to see yeah we call uh seeing uh 18 year olds with guns walking Mm. around a a trip to a a trip to cabela's or bass pro shop 
that's a that's a weekend activity for many Americans. Exactly. So like, yeah, I yeah, it's just he, in Israel it was very like I spoke to people and they were like, oh, but it's to be prepared if something happens. Where in Denmark it's okay, we will do this take out the guns and the rifles if something happens in Israel they're like yeah but something could happen anytime so we'll just be prepared all the time so but that makes sense because there's more tension and more conflict and stuff so I kind of get it but it's like really weird to see when you arrive and it's like what yeah (laughs) yeah yeah a guy sitting at the bus stop with a hoodie on just holding a rifle I was like what is happening here What? Yeah. David, couldn't you say you could hear like missiles going off Mm. when you were in Jerusalem? We were in the Golan Heights and like it was near the Syrian border. And then like the UN peacekeepers were there and they were like, well, there was this old like abandoned bunker we got to go tour. And they were like, oh, that's just a drill. And we're like, I don't I don't think so. (laughs) But but yeah, I I think the most interesting part was that every single shawarma place said best shawarma in Israel. Yeah. And like, that was like the biggest sign and it was all good, but they all said they were the best. Yeah. Yeah. That was my experience too. Like I, I, I'm a vegetarian, so I don't eat shawarma, but like, so I never got to try it, but like, it's the same with the falafel. It's like, Best yeah. falafel in all of Israel is like, oh, okay, I'm happy with that. <laughs> they have good falafel, though, so I, who am I to judge? It might be the best. So uh, moving away from the Middle East real quick before before we end this segment, have you have you had the opportunity to excavate outside of, of the Mideast? Yes. So I've been to, let's see, Italy. I excavated in Rome on a site... Which is called uh, which is called Via Ostiense. It's a Roman site with a lot of cremation burials. So we excavated the urns, but the urns are set like down, so you can't remove them. So it's like really difficult work because you have to like sit your body over the urn inside a wall, and then like yeah. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. And then I've been to Spain twice on two different excavations, uh, both Neanderthal sites. What? Um, one is Cima de las Palomas and the other is called Cueva del Alco. So, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty nice. Were there actual doves in the cave or was it just um, called that? <laughs> there, there was when they kind of found it. And there is like when we're there, there is a big main chamber because uh, it's been used before they found out that there was an actual site it was used for, I think it was salt mines. There was some kind of mine okay. and they tried to get water. So there's like this big main chamber and sometimes there's stuffs down there. But like the excavation is like you go up this um, rock uh, thingy and then you go uh, to the top of it and then you go. So there's like scaffolding and it's like 20 meters, I think, like from bottom to top. And then like you go down the scaffolding and then you sit like five meters from the top and then there's 15 meters down and there's like this really small square you can sit on an excavate and then sometimes there's doves downstairs. So yeah, there is doves. <laughs> that was a long explanation for the doves, but yeah. So we definitely saw on your CV that you talk a lot about the pre-pottery Neolithic mm-hmm. and we were discussing before like we started talking with you today, like we don't actually know what exactly that is. So in the next segment, I hope you can tell us in the audience kind of what that is and what your thesis was about. 
Welcome back to a Life Endurance podcast. We're here with Maria Slutterod. Is that right? Did I? That was very have... good. Like you can say oh. Maria if you want to. Um, Maria okay. Slutterod. I... Maria Dietz Slutterod. Sl- Maria. Okay, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Maria. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in the last segment, I talked about uh, the pre-pottery Neolithic. Now I'm familiar in the Levant, there's like the Epipaleolithic with the, mm-hmm. you know, the Natufians. Is that synonymous or is that a different thing? No, it's uh, like the Natufians are before the pre-pottery Neolithic. So it's like the preceding period. So you have like okay. the Natufians and then you have the pre-pottery Neolithic and then you have the pottery Neolithic. Can you elaborate on what the pre-pottery Neolithic is, I guess? Yes. So uh, it's the period where you start having agriculture. So that's like a very Neolithic thing, of course. Let's see, the timeline of it might be actually very nice to know. So it's uh, it's divided into three phases. It's the pre Neolithic A, and then B, and then C. This begins around 9,500 BCE and ends around 6,500 BCE. I think that would be like the round numbers of it. The agriculture comes around and you uh, start to have uh, larger settlements where people actually stay instead of moving around. So you have like actual villages with like two, three thousand people living together, which is very interesting, I think. And houses changes from round houses to like rectangular and square houses. So they become a bit bigger and have more rooms. And then you have uh, like some really cool, uh, I don't like the word ritual, but sometimes it's the best to describe things, I think, where you uh, there's a continuation from the uh, Natufian, um, how you engage with the dead in your society. So in the Natufian, you would have like dead people buried under houses, under the floor, and you would see at some um, sites uh, removal of the skull after death most often after skeletonization of the body. So that continues in the pre-pottery Neolithic where you bury people under your lime plaster floor. Um, So you have like your plaster floor and then you ruin it, bury people, and then you wait a couple of years, ruin the floor again, and then take out the head and then you place it somewhere else or you decorate it with plaster and shells, for example. Which is wow. pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's really cool. And uh, you have like clay figurines and stuff like that. So it's a period where a lot of things happen. I guess you could say. <laughs> so it's like, and the so the Neolithic B, which you are specifically kind of studying mm-hmm. as part of your thesis, is that. Yeah. So that's like the mid section or the mid time period between where they're not going like full, they're not using pottery. They're, they're kind of still transitioning into agriculture and expanding and Um, and things like that. PPNP, you have full on agriculture and domestication of animals. So like the Natufian, you start to see people like being more aware, but not really domesticating. Then the PPNA people start to domesticate and then PPNB are like, okay, this is what we're going to live off. We're going to live off domesticated stuff. So yeah, that's like, I think the period is around uh, 1500 years. So it's a long time they live together, uh, the PPNB. That seems like a very, really, really interesting time period to study because you're having all this change and 
things are getting wild. Um, yeah. And also <laughs> my dissertation on my BA was about um, the uh, transitioning from the PPN, uh, pre-pottery Neolithic, to the pottery Neolithic, because a lot of wild changes happens there too, where you have like these, as I said, large villages, the biggest of them we call um, mega sites. <laughs> and they kind of collapse at the end of the pre-pottery Neolithic, where people start moving away. And then um, people start living fewer people together. And like the rituals uh, you have in the pre-pottery Neolithic, it doesn't really exist anymore. There is not a lot of burials. Uh, or We haven't found the burials there, there, of course, or they have done something with the bodies. So like that transitioning was really cool too, to study. Like what happened? Why did they kind of collapse? And why did all these ritual things change, for example? So yeah, it's... Cool period altogether. <laughs> yeah, it seems it seems like it. And so your thesis is uh, titled "The Missing Children in the Pre-Pottery Neolithic, Neolithic B Record: A uh, Meta Database to Investigate Differences and Similarities in Southwest Asia in Burial Patterns of Infants and Children, and How This ha- May Help Create an Understanding of the Live Life and Role of the Infant and Child in Pre-Pottery Neolithic B Societies." How what a mouthful. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was getting tired just of hearing you say it. I was like, oh my God, that's so long. <laughs> I have to shorten it. <laughs> um, how, do, how do you say that in, in, in Danish, if you don't mind? Yes. Um, so actually, because you did send me this question beforehand, and I'm happy you did, because I wouldn't have been able to like make a translation while reading it in English, because I've never said the exact wording in Danish because like my thesis is in English. All of my archaeology stuff have, has always been in English. I have not had a single course, I think, in Danish. So like everything archaeological for me is in English. So uh, I had Wait, to hold write... On. Yeah. What? <laughs> you go to a Danish university and everything's in English? Yeah. So my, <laughs> my supervisor is from Germany and... The other professor is from Germany, and then we have like associate professors from Canada and England, I think. So, yeah, we've had some Danish uh, associates which got fired because uh, humanity studies are not very high prioritized. Uh, so, I've had like lectures in Danish, but yeah, the degree is uh, basically in English. <laughs> So what? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. That was just nope. mind blowing to me. So, so how do how, how, how do we it. say your thesis in, in Danish for the first okay. time ever? Yes. Okay. De manglende børn i den prekeramiske neolitiske B-optegnelse. En metadatabase med formål at undersøge forskel og ligheder i Sydvestasien i begravelsesmønstre af spædbørn og børn. Og hvordan kan dette hjælpe til at skabe en forståelse af spædbørn og børns levet liv og deres rolle i prekeramisk neolitisk B-samfund? That was well said. <laughs> Sounded like I was vomiting a lot, right? <laughs> no, you're good. I no. think that's probably what English sounds like to like Latin speakers, you know, like, like Latin language speakers. Yeah, Romance that might language be, yeah. Speakers. There you go. But yeah, that's really cool to hear. It's like, you can tell it's Germanic, but like, just not English in any, in any way. <laughs> no. When people ask about your research, like what is your elevator pitch, right? Like I don't, I don't know if you guys have that uh, colloquialism in in uh, Denmark. Like the elevator pitch being, if you're stuck in an elevator with someone mm-hmm. for like two minutes and they asked you, "What do you do?" Like what, what, what would you say? 
Well, I would say my research is about like the children in the pre-Pottery Neolithic because like in the like Southwest Asia, in the pre-Pottery Neolithic, there's been like a lot of focus on, um, and that's a general thing in archaeology um, until the like 80s, 90s, I think 90s first actually, that children are kind of not regarded as very important to the archaeological record. So you have like the issue of like, children are not being recorded and there's not a lot of like ideas about like what happened to children and like what was childhood because there's like a very weird thing like that kind of changes from culture to culture from time to time and I think it's interesting that like children they they learn so much they evolve we can like use them for so much to understand like prehistoric societies from like the bones you can see like if there was like malnutrition during their childhood growth patterns and yeah so I think like children is like a really important factor in societies which are really often like overlooked like imagine a village and then like you would probably imagine there being children but like in the archaeological record they're often not there or like at least pre-90s and they're really missing in the pre-pottery neolithic and um, i want to get them in there so i'm creating a metadata base with uh, child burials from uh, seven or eight different sites in the um, southwest asia region and trying to figure out like how were they buried and what are the differences from the from different sites and other similarities and what can we kind of tell from this yeah (laughs) i've never done an that's fascinating. I mean, we had a, a guest on the podcast not too long ago, Matt Corey. Mm-hmm. He does he does something similar, and he hit the same things you just did. Talking, he looks about at uh, evidence of of children in Great Plains, right? You know, prehistoric and like mm-hmm. uh, the nomadic uh, horse cultures, and like mm-hmm. looking at differences in teepee rings. So, like, just hearing you talk, it's like, all right, sweet. There's more of this work being done <laughs> elsewhere, which is you know, as you said, like, there's children are a fundamental part of you know a someone's lived experience like mm-hmm. you you don't get adults without children so exactly and and what was this like what could you say was your inspiration for kind of pursuing this this course of of research so actually i had a course at the university um which we called the berlin copenhagen seminar where the freie universität in berlin and then the university in copenhagen we have like an arrangement where we all do like presentations about a topic under like a bigger subject. So that year it was gender. Then the people like the students from Copenhagen, we go to Berlin and we present our topic and like our research about this topic to like the other, the class in Berlin and others who might want to attend. And then like a few months later, the students from Berlin come to Copenhagen and do the same thing. So when I did this course, it was gender, as I said, and I looked into the pre-pottery Neolithic children, whether or not gender was kind of a thing, um, if it was something you would be assigned from birth. And I did that by looking at as I told you, like the skulls in the pre-pottery Neolithic, where you remove them and then you then you decorate them and such. You also have like um, in vivo cranial like deformations, so like deformations you make on the cranium intentionally, um, and that has to happen at birth, like around birth, because then you can still form the cranium. 
So the interesting thing for me was to see if this was a selection from the sex of the um, of the child, if more boys than girls were um, had their head deformed. Like you can't really figure out the sex of a baby or a child without like doing DNA testing. And DNA testing in the pre-pottery Neolithic is difficult because DNA isn't really very well conserved. Then I had to look at the adults like who had their head shaped differently. And if that could tell us something about if you had a gender or if more boys than girls were selected for this. And that's when I came across like how childhood is so neglected. So, yeah. That's really, that's really interesting. And because yeah, you, you hear about cranium deformation and I think it's pretty popular in like the um, South America, you know, with like the, the different societies down there that would shape elongate the cranium and things like that. But you don't really don't yeah. hear it talked about in this kind of Southwest Asia in this pre party no. uh, area. It's really cool to, to hear about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. So, so you're, 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 you're taking um, for your thesis, you're taking an osteological approach to, yeah. to this by, and, and how are you going? Are you studying just infants? Are you studying adults? Are, what are um, kind of your methods around that? So, well, I'm studying infants and children, so and not really the adults. Um, that would be too much work um, <laughs> <laughs> to, to look at all of them because I'm using, I think it's seven different sites to make these uh, patterns, like see if there's any patterns and yeah, differences. So it's a really large database I'm creating right now. Or like, it of course isn't big enough if I really wanted to say something, but it is big enough for the thesis, which has to be like 60 pages. So it's a lot of gathering data from reports and articles, basically, <laughs> and then put it into a database. And it's been difficult with some of the sites because uh, if they're before like the 2000s, there is not always a lot of information on the children. So a lot of the boxes in my database is just like no information, no information, no information. Um, oh my goodness. Like there's nothing. <laughs> but it's also good because then I can discuss like, well, you see, this could have been interesting to know, but people didn't care about children. So <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 interesting. And and uh, the the woes of data collection is something that is very real in, in any <laughs> yeah. sort of research or anything like that. It's it's uh especially with time and things have changed. Mm. And so I think wrapping up this segment before we move on to segment three, <laughs> I don't know if we have much time, but I guess we can get into this more in the next segment. But we were kind of talking about, my mind was blown that everything in the University of Copenhagen is in English. But <laughs> where does archaeology fit in the Danish academic system? Because here in the US, you know, of course, it's anthropology. And we know in like England and other places, it's under history. Where does it sit in Denmark? So in Denmark, it's, well, we have three different branches of archaeology. In Copenhagen, it's uh, Near Eastern archaeology, classic archaeology, or classical, and then prehistoric archaeology, which is Danish archaeology. So first of all, they're all in different departments. Or like the Near Eastern is in the cross-cultural and regional studies at the Humanities Department um, Institute. And that's also where the two other archaeology branches are at the same institute. So ours is in humanities and then in a different department. Yeah, so you have like three branches and every branch you only focus on that one subject area. So I've only been taught about the Near East, nothing else since day one. (laughs) So yeah. 
So it's like regionalized. That's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think the two others aren't the, or at least the prehistoric is in Saxo, which is like also history is also there. I think the classical one is too. I'm not sure. I don't remember. But yeah. Well, uh, this episode is turning into quite the classical one. So um, on that note, we will will catch you in the next segment. And welcome back to episode 46 of Life in Ruins. Um, We're here with Maria. And so for this third segment, we wanted to talk with Maria about what it's like working in the Middle East or Southwest Asia. Um, We kind of touched on some of uh, some of like the the environment the you know cultural and political environment in that first segment but we really kind of wanted to dive in it today and so um, Maria, at, at any point when you were working in in Jordan or Cyprus or, or Jerusalem was there ever something going on politically between countries in the Middle East or different groups that kind of had tensions pretty risen I would say like Jordan is probably the most peaceful country in the Middle East, at least at the time I was there. There isn't really any conflicts ongoing in Jordan as such, but there's a lot of refugees. And yeah, there was like when you drove on the highway, there would be like military tanks or cars with like big weapons on them and stuff like that, like parked at, parked at like the sideway or like the, yeah, on the road. Um, so that was like, I didn't really notice much there. You know, I was living in a very, like, not not a big city. It was called, it's called Madaba. It's actually a Christian city, I think, in Jordan. Um, you would call it that. We're living at a hotel and stuff. So you don't like, and then kind of what we did was go to and from site every day. And then in the weekends, we would go like on visits to different places. So we went to like Petra and Jarish and stuff like that. Um, so in Jordan, I didn't feel it much. Uh, it was mainly like seeing like sometimes you drove in a bus and saw like refugee camps, which is not something you really see when you come from Denmark. So that was very different. And I would say like where I felt it the most was definitely in Jerusalem, just like the feel of going into the old city. It's an amazing place, but you can feel there's like some tension. And like yeah, as we spoke about in the first segment about like, the young people with guns everywhere, <laughs> rifles. Um, yeah. I think like after I'd been in um, the first week I was in uh, in Israel, I lived in inside of Jerusalem. And then the week after I moved uh, a bit out of it because I could live for free. I think it was like, yeah, uh, two weeks in, there was a, um, a missile attack. It was down south, but there was just like helicopters everywhere around Jerusalem. And it was just kind of scary because I knew it wasn't going on um, in Jerusalem, but it was still like, okay, this I'm not used to, like knowing there's like a missile attack and knowing that like there could be something here. And yeah. And when I was there, there was also a, uh, an election. I think it was the third, uh, first out of the, what are they on now? The third or fourth in two years or something. They're just oh keep on going with the <laughs> elections. But that was the first one. There was a day I know that BP, he was in uh, in Jerusalem where it was like, oh, don't go to Jerusalem or to the old city because there can be trouble. And then there's a day called Jerusalem Day where the Israeli uh, occupants or like inhabitants, they celebrate that they won the Six-Day War, I guess it is. Yeah. And that unfortunately means that 
um, there can be a lot of like chaos, especially in the old city, because um, the Palestinians, they will close up their shops because uh, the ultra-Orthodox uh, youth will uh, march around and uh, spit on the doors and windows and be like yell some really ugly stuff. So there's like days when people like, don't go to Jerusalem today because of this. And well, the whole religion thing is very interesting and very uh, weird. Like at Mutza, we had, this is very normal for all um, archaeological excavations in Israel, but I think especially around Jerusalem, um, that um, ultra Orthodox Jews will come to the site and like kind of investigate if there's something Jewish on the site, if something Jewish has been found. And if they suspect it, they will just be like, you can't dig that anymore. We have to check this. And these are people who have no uh, archaeological experience or anything. Um, so Mutza is a pre-pottery Neolithic site. So, But there's also Roman things and there's also Bronze Age things. Uh, so there can like be Jewish things. So the issue was when you're like digging a burial, they could come and be like, oh, this burial, you shouldn't take it out because it might be Jewish. And that's a problem when you're on salvage excavation um, where right. you have to like move really fast. But I would say like working at that site, it was also very, you have this thing. I don't know if this happens any place, any other places, but like in like the Middle East, it's very normal that, an excavation, you hire workers who do like the hard job of like pickaxing, like with the big hose and um, isn't that what mm-hmm. it's called? Yeah, the big pickaxes <laughs> mm-hmm. and like kind of uh, like do all the hard work. And then, um, and that was the case at Mutsa. They had hired, I think it was two, 300 Palestinians to do like the hard work. And it's the same in Jordan. We hired people to do all the hard work so we could sit and do like the more relaxed work. And uh, so, yeah, yeah. And I just have to remember I'm white and remember my privilege and the colonialism of it all and all of that when I'm there. (laughs) And remember I'm a guest in their country, in their culture, in their heritage. Yeah, that seems that seems really interesting, especially since I've only like and I mentioned it earlier, I've only worked kind of in Wyoming and Colorado where, you know, the worst thing that can happen to you is either you get extremely sunburnt like Carlton does when he forgets sunscreen and whatnot, or you can, you know, um, you can be dehydrated, it can be hot and, and things mm. like that. Or, you know, sometimes you come back to and uh, famous celebrity celebrity dies or something. You know, I was in the field when Robin Williams died. So oh. like, how is it? is it really easy to focus on the archaeology with all this kind of extra tension going on? Well, I think so. Like for me, it was pretty easy. Like it kind of depends on how you work, I guess. I get very like hyper-focused on stuff when I work. So like I forget to eat lunch and stuff like that. (laughs) So to me, it's like I start working and then I forget everything else. But yeah, you can like focus on the archaeology. You just have like, I think you're just like aware of, for example, I had like three good friends at the site who were Palestinians. And there was one day we had to remove a box with a burial inside of it. Like they had boxed the burial and we had to remove it. And it was really difficult because they're, they had boxed it and then rain season came. So there was really muddy and it had just like, it was so difficult and they were just like oh you just sit down and supervise us removing this so i was like feeling a bit like 
back to the, I don't know, 1900s where the white people would just sit and watch people work. And I was like, what can I do to help you? Because it felt kind of wrong to just do nothing and supervise and removing a box. But I didn't feel like I had to be, like, I think the only thing was that I shouldn't discuss politics too much in Israel. And my supervisor before sending me on the excavation, he was like, just don't discuss politics. Thank you. Because, uh, yeah. Um, so I think that's like the biggest thing is like, don't put all the politics into the archaeology when you're there. Don't start being like, oh, but Israel is doing this shit to the Palestinians and the other way around because like you won't make friends and they won't be like open to you and want to work with you if you're judgmental from the beginning, I guess. Yeah, I think that's, I, I would say that's probably pretty a pretty good advice for even people in the u.s as well it's uh it's it's interesting did you ultimately kind of bond with the workers that you're working with um yes there was a language barrier because i actually don't speak arabic i'm hoping to learn that at some point so there was a language barrier because a lot of them don't speak english the workers but i had one who um, was kind of helping me in the beginning um called ahmed and we became really good friends and I talked to him every day and he, he calls me his sister. So like I got a really close relationship to him and I'm like his, uh, he got a son a few months after I left him and, and I'm his uh, son's aunt. So like, yeah. And like the, the workers knew who I was and were always smiling and calling things to me which I didn't always understand but like they would always try and share their lunch with me and stuff like that so yeah I feel like uh, I got that's good but that's the good thing about the Middle East is that people are so open and welcoming like you don't even speak the same language and you can become friends almost it's a good place to go if want to go outside of your country but you're a bit nervous about meeting new people and stuff it's like i went to the old city and helped a man translate something he had a sign and he had learned danish from someone in the old city like some tourists had told him something in danish so he wanted to be sure that he had written it right in danish and i was like yeah like he was just can you write it for me i did it and he was like oh i have a gift for you and hey do you want to come inside and have some tea with me like come to my shop have tea so like people are so welcoming <laughs> so it's very easy to like even i am a super introvert but like i feel so comfortable there so quick because people just want to your friend the people i met they were very nice i I liked that aspect of it but the the tension for sure especially in the old city yeah it's like palpable other than that it's like like looking out like outside of jerusalem like all the hills and like like they have the same i don't know if i ever told you guys this but like they have a you have to use this specific like jerusalem stone to build buildings so it all looks like flush kind of like santa fe it's really cool like it the and it's cool like the hills i don't know it was neat. But yeah. then also at the same time, you're like, well, I can't go to the other side of the city uh, at this time of day, kind of thing like that. It's like, it's weird. But. Yeah, 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 definitely. It's uh, it's odd to have like those like limits. I, I lived inside of Jerusalem the first week and I found like a room where I could stay. And the man was like, he showed me around the area where, where the apartment was. And he was like, yeah, so this is one of the safe places. 
just don't go that place after dark. Don't go there alone. Don't go there alone. Don't use that gate, which is closest here to into the old city. Um, someone was stabbed over there and over there. And I was like, well, I'm from Copenhagen. <laughs> like, <laughs> damn. Like, and this is safe. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's weird. Yeah. If you had like one thing to tell the audience listening about like your work there or like your thesis or just your experience in archaeology, like what would be the one thing you'd want to let people know? Oh, uh, I don't know. Always wear sunscreen. No. Um... <laughs> yeah, Carlton. <laughs> I, I'll stand by. I'll, I'll stand by that if you just get one really bad burn right in the summer, you have the base layer and you're set. But like and... cancer, is that a thing? I don't know. Like, I don't know. Oh, in America, of course. <laughs> no, but, but like I'm really, really white. I went, when I came to Israel, I was really white. When I left, I was really white. Then I went to Spain for almost two months and I was really white. When I came home, I was like in warm countries for like, five or six months and I didn't get a tan at all because I'm so white. I need like factor of 50 plus. And the, <laughs> the, uh, the um, one director at the site in, um, in Jerusalem, he said that like, when you arrived, you were like kind of see-through white. Now you're only like paper white or something like that. I was like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> like, I tanned like a minuscule, but well, sun cream and drink water, but, Oh, it's a hard one. Caught me off guard. <laughs> See, I, I think uh, just uh, in, enjoy like excavating and enjoy the process. And I think it's really important to like, like when I was at the other side, Amuda, um, all the people I was excavating with, almost everyone was from the US. And there were so many like Baptists and there was a lot of like Trump supporters. And like, I still got really well along with them i'm like socialist atheist so i think it's also really important to just always keep an open mind yeah i don't know (laughs) oh i think that's a good answer like just keep like especially as an anthropological thing just everywhere you go keep an open mind and kind of observe it don't (laughs) judge it yeah yeah true this is a weird question before we end did you see the elevators in like town like on the sabbath they like constantly run so that instead of like actually using the elevator, you can just get on it and then like get off at a certain floor. There <laughs> no, were like I didn't little, see that. yeah, there was like little loopholes around the city like that, so you didn't have to use technology on it's the Sabbath. And I thought so, that was fascinating. <laughs> that's so weird. Like they, like it's it's such a weird thing. Also, that was one of the weirdest thing of being in Israel. Like you just had to know that like four o'clock, five o'clock, you can't go anywhere Friday until Saturday mm-hmm. seven o'clock. And it was like. I don't have a driver's license yet, so I couldn't rent a car. So I was actually just stuck in this small city, like without being able to do anything but go for a walk because it was really religious. So I couldn't go to a cafe or anything. So it's just yeah. like you just have to be standby. And I know that there's like when I was searching for a place to live, it was like, oh, you have to be like shepherd friendly in this apartment or this neighborhood, which means you can't use electricity for like 24 hours. And I was like, well, that's not going to yeah. happen. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, so there's a lot of weird things. And yeah, it was, it was odd, but I, fair enough. I think the thing that I spoke to a lot of other people with who are also Jewish were like, they were like, well, like that's fine. They want to do it, but does does that mean that I can't use the bus because they don't want to? Like you know, stuff like that. Like, why mm-hmm. should everybody? Because they're a minority, right? The ultra orthodox, even though they 
kind of expanding with all of the children they're having. They're still like a minority group. They just have so much power. Um, it's insane. The Orthodox? Yeah, they like they yeah. have a lot of power. Yeah, as I said, like they can go to a site and just be like, oh, you have to shut this down because we think it might be Jewish or like, right. yeah, they can shut the whole country down because of Passover. Like you can't buy anything other than dry biscuits in the supermarket almost <laughs> you can't buy bread and stuff like that so it's uh, all right well before we end the show maria like what are a couple of sources like books articles yes. videos etc that you would recommend for anyone interested in near eastern archaeology that's a good question so there is my issue is always remembering the author's name so there's the archaeology of mesopotamia which i think is a good introduction i think it's taylor and francis group who has done it but I also have, like, on my Instagram, um, I have, like, a fixed story with different titles on it. But then there's also Ancient Egypt by Iron Shaw. And then there's, um, for me, a really great book is The Agricultural Revolution in Prehistory, which I use a lot. It's not only the Near East, but that's Graham Barker. And I really like that one. So it's, like, all across the world. But there's a really good section on the Near East there. Excellent. And uh, speaking of your Instagram, where can our listeners find you on social media? Maria underscore archaeology. Very cool. And uh, because this is a life in ruins, we always ask our guests at the end of it, you know, if you had a, a choice in life, if you go back and redo this, would you choose once again to live a life in ruins? I would. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> awesome. Excellent. We just interviewed... Maria Duguet Sletorod, a master's student in archaeology at the University of Copenhagen. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast, and you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So once again, this is coming from uh, my dad jokes given to me by my father. Shout out, Dean. So I heard Sony's coming out with a new console during the pandemic. It's called the Plague Station 5. Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Oh. Mazel tov. <laughs> this episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.